Hello, and welcome to the Organizational Mindfulness Podcast, where in every episode, we interview leading authors and thought leaders in the fields of mindfulness, neuroscience, and organizational change. You'll hear the latest insights, discoveries, and guidance from world-class experts as we explore recent trends, new ideas, and important work related to the adoption of mindfulness in organizations. This podcast is presented by the Institute for Organizational Mindfulness. Hi, I'm your host, Brett Hill, and today's show is really special as we have a guest, the incredible Phil Dixon. Phil was one of the first employees at Apple, and he began to explore what makes some groups work and others fail. What makes a good leader, and how can you help people become better leaders? This exploration led to being involved with leadership training where he advised companies like Apple, BP, Google, and Twitter. And then something important happened. While acquiring his master's, he discovered the field of neuroscience, which was pivotal for him now. Instead of training traditional leadership and traditional leadership training, he has created his own methods using neuroscience as the foundation for measurable and actionable change. So we can all be better people, have better organizations, and build a better world. Based on this work, he founded the Oxford Brain Institute and is the co-author of Understand Your Brain for a Change and his new book, Understand Your Brain on Its Own at Work. Phil, we're really, really happy to welcome you to the show. And I'm really, really happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Uh, you've been so fun. Uh, it's been so fun learning uh, about your work and reading your books and talking with you. And and in this um, in your conversation in the book, you talk about how you were doing leadership training as a way to help teams and leaders to be more effective. And you discovered uh, some some really impressive work in that direction. But then, as I mentioned in the introduction, you you kind of shape shifted yourself all of a sudden whenever you discovered neuroscience. So can you say a little bit about how the discovery of the entire field of neuroscience, or not so much the entire field, because I'm sure you knew it was there, but something landed in you about the impact and the meaning of this. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it probably had started this is 20 years before. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to see that we were doing leadership development. There were thousands of books being written and thousands of paper be, papers being published. And I would hypothesize that we weren't actually producing any better leaders. And I started to think, you know, what is it that we are missing? What are we, do, what are we doing wrong? There has to be a different approach. Um, and I started to look for something that maybe would underlie all the different things that we were talking about in the way of competencies and all, all the traditional stuff we were doing. In fact, I coined a term called the leadership genome. And I was looking for huh. something that if we, if we could under, if there was something that was underneath everything else and we could teach that, then maybe we'd, we'd have something. Um, so, so I was looking for you know, connective tissue. So you were really, and this was based on your training experience, because you had worked with some world-class leaders at this point in time, like um, some of the companies you'd worked like, like, you know, at Apple who, and, and working with the groups there. And so at this point, you had had a lot of experience with, you know, big time leaders. And, and what's got your attention all of a sudden now is what's underneath effective leadership from a, from a science point yeah. of view. Yeah, we used to we used to run some of the best leadership, you know, leading leading age leadership programs. And I would ask people, well, what did you learn? What did you do differently? Mm -hmm. um, and there was there were minuscule differences. We weren't having a major impact. 
And then, gosh, I guess it was about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, um, when I was first introduced to the neuroscience of the brain, it suddenly, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but it was like a, <laughs> an epiphany. That's what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we can understand the brains of leaders and help leaders understand their own and other people's brains, then we can maybe shift this whole um, profession, industry, whatever you want to call it, we can move it forward. So you discovered this and had this epiphany and said, this is the key. This is the key that unlocks this door. I'm being metaphorical, of course. And and so you started uh, diving into this in a pretty deep way. Like I've been looking uh, through your book here, and I just want to hold this book up here called Understand Your Brain uh, on its own at work. And you can see I've been making good reading of it here. And this is the second one. This is the one at work. And this is a companion to your first work. And I just wanted to let readers know about that because this is something people should be familiar with. Do you have that one around? Well, the first, yeah. So the first one was this, well, where it's understand your brain for a change. Mm -hmm. And really what that was, was um, I had looked at, I'd read lots and lots of books by that time on the neuroship leadership on so the brain. And it seemed to come into two different categories. One was written by neuroscientists, which was so dense and almost impossible to understand. Yeah. And full of Latin terminologies for the, for the brain. And, and right. no one in their right mind is going to spend time looking at it. <laughs> at the other end, there was a lot that was written by you know, probably journalists and things that weren't rigorous enough. And I mm -hmm. was looking for something in the middle. So that was the first one is let's get a model of the brain. There's, there's you know, 55,000 references in here. So it is a good one to put you to sleep. Um, <laughs> but then the companion one was the first of four that we're planning on writing. And this was uh, when you're when you're working on your own at work, what are the sorts of things that influence your decision making, your stress management, your presence, your courage, your accountability and all those type of things. But it's about you on your own. Amazing. So um, I noticed that in your approach to this, you start to talk early on about, you know, how the brain evolved. And in one of the key things you talk about is how the brain evolved primarily to keep us safe. And uh, do I have that right? And that and, and as a result yeah. of that, that kind of skews everything that we do in a particular way. And you did something more than just tell people about this. You developed this notion of a thing called a personal threat profile. Can you talk to us about what that is and why it matters? Yeah. So, um, so yes, you're correct in that the brain has one primary purpose. Um, John Medina in his book, Brain Rules, basically says the brain's purpose is a prediction machine for predicting problems about survival mm -hmm. whilst in an outdoor environment, constantly on the move under constantly changing conditions. But it's all about survival. And, you know, if you if you look at it, then uh, we're still operating with that brain, and I'll call it brain 1.0. Society's mm -hmm. moved to version 25.0, but our brains are still mm -hmm. operating in 1.0. So we are driven by responding to threats and rewards. Um, and so every one fifth of a second, the brain is scanning its environment. Uh, we can talk about what that actually means in a moment. Right. It's scanning its environment, looking for threats and rewards, and and it reacts primarily to threats. So what what I did is I said, if we could step back and look at what are the th types of threats, we don't tend to have too much in the way of being chased by saber-toothed tigers these days, uh, yes. although there are some bosses like that. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, we um, we're primarily driven by social and emotional threats. And if we said if we can if we can look at what all that is, so we then we then or I, I sat down for about two years, looked at a whole bunch of different things that we both want and don't want, and identified mm -hmm. forty seven different um, different aspects of threat. Mm -hmm. And that we call so, the threat, threat profile. And so the profile, I mean, how does a person, I mean, how do you implement this? How do you use this profile? I mean, you've got some, is it, is it something you use in your work? Yeah. So um, what a, if, if you can, there's lots and lots of um, character profiles out there and personality profiles. And last time I counted, there was like 2,500 of them. And they uh, typically give you labels, or you're one of these, or you're a, you know what you know, they give a label, or an ISTJ, or you're a yellow, or you're a pink, or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> right. But it doesn't go into enough granularity to actually mm -hmm. be useful in what might cause you to react the way you do, or what might cause you to be in conflict with another person or respond mm -hmm. the way we, you, you want to. So this, the idea of the personal threat profile is it goes deeper than all those personalities and actually looks at what's going on in your brain and mm -hmm. why you get triggered and what happens when you get triggered. So what I, what I say to some people is from here on out, I'm going to give you the, the excuse you can use for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It was not me. It was my brain. <laughs> um, because it, because you know, when when we're implying something about ourselves, it's like we have actual control over it. Whereas we we don't have much control over many of the actions that our brain takes. A lot of it's going on in non-consciously behind us. Yeah. So um, I can't remember the exact data, but so you know, we know that things happen in the non-conscious brain way before we we're, we're consciously aware of them. And I, I, I'm recalling one piece of research that said they've identified they've identified brain patterns at an unconscious level up to 13 seconds before we became consciously aware of it. 13 you know, I mean, seconds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. <and> so, <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, it's when we 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 think That's we're in control, we're not. Yeah. Yeah, and people yeah. are very so, resistant to that information as well. It seems like you know you try to tell people, well, I don't know, I don't think you're making all the choices you think you're making, and and people are like so resistant. I think that's also one of the studies is that people are extremely resistant to this information. Um, yeah, and and when so, I'm when I'm trying to illustrate the non the non consciousness of things, I ask people if they've ever blushed. And you know, right. pretty much everyone puts their hand up and go, well, was that a conscious decision you made? You made a decision to flush your face with blood, basically. <laughs> um, you did that consciously? No, you didn't. Or shivering. Um, mm. Or your hair standing on end. Um, I mean, mm. all of those things are going on behind the scenes. You're making, your body is making a decision that's out of your, out of your control. Um, and there are many, many, many things that Right. And, and so one, one of the things you said is the things out of your control. And I was just actually reading in your book, um, the, the one about at work, and you talk about these environments and the ability to kind of get things done, you know, willpower and capacity to actually implement um, uh, tasks in a willful way. And would that be because we just don't have the capacity to sustain resistance against these environments or is it just a brain resource we consume or what? And, and the corollary to that is it makes sense to manage your environment so that it's not as stressful 
And that has direct implications in how a person might structure a business in a business work environment. Absolutely. So if you, um, there's, there's a big struggle that goes on in the brain every, every one fifth of a second. And that is the brain, part of the brain is trying to react to the threats and rewards. But it doesn't, the part that's reacting to that is like a, I've got a colleague who calls it a sentry that's pounded 30 mm. cups of coffee and is just <laughs> on high, high, high alert. And mm. so anything that comes in, this sentry is ready to just jump at a moment's notice, then sends a little message up to actually the prefrontal cortex that says, should I be worrying about this? And the prefrontal cortex sends a message back saying, no, 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 that, that rustle you heard was just the wind in the leaves. It wasn't a snake. You can sort of settle down. So that little struggle is going on all the time. Um, and the prefrontal cortex, which I mentioned just now, starts to get tired. And the mm. more decisions or the more overrides that it has to do, then the more tired it gets. It also gets taken offline by being put under threat. So if I was mm -hmm. to, and I promise I won't do this, but if I was to insult you or dismiss an idea of yours or, um, you know, whatever it might be. Some kind of challenge. the brain that. under yeah. threat. That's a sort of mm -hmm. challenge. And gradually, as we get more and more of these challenges, the prefrontal cortex gets taken more and more offline and therefore is mm -hmm. less and less able to, um, you know, make certain that that, Sentry's reaction is controlled. And so we revert basically to non-conscious behavior, which brings out biases and habits and patterns and all those type of things. Mm -hmm. And so one of the environment, environmental factors you, uh, that plays at work um, is the notion of, you know, working as anxiety, of course, and, you know, the stress of just deadlines and to do's. You mentioned in the book that um, one of the key things that people report having anxiety about is their bosses, that they have a lot of stress around, you know, the people that they're working for. So let's say you're, you know, you're, you're trying to be a good person and you're reading your book and you're looking at your threat profile and you realize, you know, I'm threatened by my boss. Not in, I don't mean like in a, you know, a physical dangerous way, but like, you know, the threat of like, ah, I hope this uh, they're challenging and they're maybe uh, uh, demanding. Um, and so that causes you stress. What would you recommend for a person to help the prefrontal cortex have more capacity to manage an experience? Well, as you, uh, my father used to call me a passive rebel. So I have to be careful about how <laughs> I answer things like that because uh, most of the time I'd say, go and find yourself another boss. Um, well, there is that. You know, seven <laughs> Um, you had a couple examples in your book where you actually did that. Actually, you you had the one case where you, you talked about you were brought in as a consultant and they asked you to do some things and they clearly weren't ready for the truth. And you just kind of said, I'm sorry, I'm out of here. And I remember that story. It was pretty good. That's right. Yeah. And and but I've done that a lot. But what can you do sort of short of that? Well, first of all, identifying what are the types of things that your boss or the environment might do to make you feel under stress or under threat. So for example, let's say, uh, I'll use myself as an example. One of my most important things is being, uh, having a high degree of autonomy over what I do. Mm -hmm. um, if I find that, uh, that I don't have that level of autonomy, that will put me under stress. 
So mm-hmm. uh, understand things like that. My, my second biggest driver is fairness. So if I, think, if I find something that I see, and it's got to be my opinion, not, not everybody else's, my opinion is not fair, and that's going to put me under stress as well. Mm-hmm. Different things put different people under stress. So finding out what is the ones that are going to put you under stress, you as a, a specific individual, are probably the biggest, the, thing, the, the biggest single first step, easy for me to say. Um, so you know, finding that out is the first step in managing it. Um, the second is doing something about it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, I forget who it was that sort of analyzed the, the different reactions we can have to stress. And one of them is if you can identify it, if it's possible to remove the situations that actually put you in, under stress, uh, then that's the simplest first strategy. If I know that you know, any time I meet with Brett, then mm-hmm. I'm going to feel stressed. Then don't meet with Brett. Um, I mean, it, it sounds flippant, but you know, if it's for some people, it's actually a choice. Just, just um, an The other thing strategy. I can do. It's a, that's exactly what it is. Avoidance or avoidance strategy is it's a legitimate strategy um, if it's mm-hmm. possible to do so. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I can do is start to actually work on my inner self, and that is. If I, if I know that I've got a, uh, a meeting with Brett and it's Brett that puts me under difficulty, <laughs> before the meeting, if I can breathe, deep breathe for two minutes, mm-hmm. you know, 10 or 12 deep breaths, that actually helps me with dealing with a level of stress. It increases my stress tolerance, if you like. If I can and do so it how for is that, how does that minutes, happen? Like what's, what are the mechanics of that that cause that to be true? Well, there's a strong linkage between the lungs, the brain, and the heart. And so what is happening as you are doing deep breathing, um, then it is impacting the, your, it's the difference between your, the, the heart rate you have as you breathe in and your heart rate you have as you breathe out. That's called um, heart rate variability. And the greater that variability is, then the calmer you are. And breathing deeply will cause that to to get a um, you know a greater variability, and uh, that will in turn cause the brain to be more able to deal with with stress. Um, you're going to have to ask a neuroscientist the actual intricacies of how that operates, rather than me. I can tell you the results, not the, yeah. the why it happens. Yeah. If if you can do it for ten minutes at the beginning of the day, it actually sets you up better for the next twenty four hours. So ten minutes of deep oh, breathing. I think monks. I think monks have known this for probably two thousand years. Uh, we're yes. just now understanding the uh, the neuroscience behind it. But if you can do ten minutes of deep breathing at the beginning of every day, it really helps. Hmm, amazing. Um, and you know, I'm always thinking in the context of like, how does this work at work? Like, you know, you can close your door before a big meeting and take some time to breathe before presentation before, uh, you know, you have to lead something or maybe before you dive into a complex task, help. And the words I use are help gather your bits by just being present and breathing. Um, Which sort of leads us to uh, another question I wanted to ask. Um, In your book, you have a lot of great quotes. And one of them stood out as particularly relevant uh, for this conversation was attributed to, I believe it's Congleton at the Harvard Business Review, where it says, quote, mindfulness should no longer be considered a nice to have for executives. It's a must have. 
And I was wondering if you could say more about that. Well, I think there's there's more and more. Uh, let me let me step back a moment, and uh, that the more you can understand yourself as an individual, the more you can actually become a better leader. So, self awareness um, is the is, in my book is the first. Um, well, in, in the literally in my book and in the book we wrote, it's you know, mm-hmm. self awareness is is the very 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 first thing, and becoming mindful of what's going on is part of that self awareness. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the second chapter is peeling the layers off your personal onion, which is you know, getting to a point where you understand not only who you are, but who you are as you come across to other people and the impact you have. So becoming mindful is an integral part of that process. And again, as I said in the book, I don't life is getting more and more complicated. So if we can, mm-hmm. you can at least there's some things you can do something about. You can do something about getting uh, understanding yourself. You might not be able to do anything about the competition or the environment you're operating in or the legal situation, but you can have control over your own uh, reactions and things like that. So that's why I think it's a you know, in this VUCA world, and I can explain what the VUCA world is if, if that's useful. Um, in this VUCA world, understanding who you are, why you react the way you do is, is really, really powerful. And so using this information, what would you say to the audience, to the people that are in business who can influence the corporate culture or can implement programs? What would you like? What works? What should be like top of mind for them as they start to begin to think about how to implement um, you know, some of these notions in their in their day to day in day to day life in the in a company. Well, being aware of how they make decisions, being aware of how they come across and influence other people, being aware of when someone comes into their office and is in is in panic mode, trying to mm-hmm. get them to think about a future vision is literally a waste of time. You know, mm-hmm. so understanding the way that people's brains operate, then and then being where they are, I think that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing I, I think is, um, you know, we can inc- we can operate, we can work in a brain friendly fashion. So if you come along to me and you ask my opinion about something, um, I'm happy to give you an opinion. But more <laughs> often than not, you actually you've got an opinion about what you want to do, regardless. In fact, it turns mm-hmm. out that something like five times out of six, when you're asking my opinion, you have your own opinion. If I mm-hmm. seek that out for you from you, then if you actually turn around and say, well, my opinion is actually X, if we do X, you're far more likely to actually make that occur than if I give you an answer. Um, so you eliciting the answers out of other people and, and and the data says five times out of six, they've got the answer. So, mm-hmm. But what most of us do is we're so pressed, we'll just go, oh, we'll do X. Mm-hmm. And we expect it to be done. Whereas we haven't taken that little extra time to go, okay, Brett, what do you think we should do? And right, that simple right. switch like that. And if you do get to the point where somebody doesn't know what to do, don't give them one answer. Give them two or three. Because the brain loves choices. Mm. So mm. if you give them two or three possibilities and then turn around and say, and which do you think is most appropriate in this situation? Then their brain thinks, ah, it's my choice. 
and they're mm. more likely to actually implement. So there's you little give them tiny, these the are not great. Way. Right, you're not. These are not great big things to do, like pushing a building over or something. These are really small <laughs> micro adjustments that we can make to to our interaction with other people. Well, right, and the thing I love about what you're saying is it's a, it's interpersonal. It's in conversation. It's in real time. But you have to have the presence of mind, the mindfulness, literally, to be aware of. Oh, well, rather than just come back with my automatic answer because I'm under stress and I don't have much time, I'm going to be, I'm going to take in the context of what's happening. I can see this person is under stress. I already know because Phil said, and it's true that people have opinions and maybe it's better to ask, well, what do you think? Do you have an opinion? And then coming back with choices is is a really, um, that's just really great advice, I think, as well, because it empowers the other person to make a choice, keeps them in the sense of, of um, so the the leader can then shape shift without resting control and and give authority back to the the other to their colleague. That's that's really great advice. And uh, you've done so much work for so many years in terms of trying to help other people be leaders and more competent and have better lives. But I want to know, like, why? What 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 is it about you personally that causes this to be the thing that? that you get up to want to do every day. What's it, what's, what is it that lights you up about that? That's a great question. And I don't know whether I've got a great answer. Um, <laughs> but you, when I discovered that we had brains and I'm being trying, trying to be flippant here, but, uh, and the fact that the, that, that what we were doing at a non-conscious level was so powerful, uh, you know, uh, literally a, a switch flipped, and it became my purpose on this planet it was to help hmm. people understand the brain and and get themselves and other people to have better lives. Um, hmm. And so, you know, at some level, I know I know there's a level of curiosity. Um, I I was told when I was 16 that I would never write. Um, <laughs> and I think I proved them wrong. Um, so, um, and, and I think part, you know, part of it is just understanding i mean i read probably a half a dozen papers every day not in depth mm. but you know i read the abstracts of half a dozen papers every day and at least a couple of times a week there's something that i go oh my gosh i didn't know that and mm -hmm. so having that level of curiosity um i've got a high level of curiosity i'm a learner um i you know, I just like collecting. I like having input about things. So I think all mm -hmm. those things, they're part of my brain, they're part of who I am. Um, that's that was that's what makes me tick in the morning. Hmm. That and a glass of scotch in the evening. <laughs> a little breathing in the morning, a little scotch in the afternoon, and some abstracts in the middle of the day. And you're <laughs> good to go. It's a good and, life. Right? And humor. And, and, and what was, on humor, I, yeah. I, I, Humor. Clearly. It's, you know, there's so many people that don't seem to have the ability to to take things a little bit with a grain of salt, not taking them. I take life seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. Well, there we go. That's, that's beautiful. So I just wanted to, to thank you so much because this has really been amazing. And if people want to find out more about you and what you do and your work, where, where do they go? How do they how do they reach out to you? The easiest way is to on, on my email, phildixon1 at macmac.com. 
That was uh, Phil Dixon won at, what was that last thing? M-A... M-A-C.com. Mac, like a Mac computer. Like, okay, perfect. As, as, in, as, in, as in the Apple Mac. Perfect. That's Because uh, you were... You were one of the people who uh, helped get that produced in the world. Is that right? Well, I, I wasn't on that side of it. I was on the IT side, but I do remember someone running in with a waving a, a, a you know a circuit board high in the air, saying it works. And, uh, <laughs> that was in the early days. That was in the early it's, days of Mac. Was, I think that was nineteen eighty two. Well, that's a fun fun thing to have in you know your history is to be a part of such a pivotal point of uh, personal computing, change the world. And I appreciate the work that you're doing uh, to change the world and to help people be better people. And I encourage people to go out and check out Phil Dixon's book, Understanding Your Brain, on its own at work, and his other book as well, Understanding Your Brain. Uh, amazing conversation, and I really appreciate you being a guest on the Institute for Organizational Mindfulness podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. And if you want to ever invite me back, I'm happy to do it a second time. We would be very, very happy to have you for round two. Uh, as I know you're working on some other books and it's going to be amazing to, to see what you come up with. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Organizational Mindfulness Podcast. And if you did, leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you enjoy your podcast. While you're there, be sure to click subscribe because you're not going to want to miss our next interview with another amazing guest. I'm your host, Brett Hill, for the Institute for Organizational Mindfulness. Till next time, stay present.